So we're going to pick up in Job again today, and if you'll turn, we're, we're in Job chapter 32 today. And so the title of our sermon today is Saved from the Pit, and we're going to hear this phrase used a couple times uh, in our passage today, where he talks about being saved from the pit, um, and how this is a true reality of what Christ has done through his gift of salvation to us, is that he has saved us from the pit, the pit being death or eternal death or eternal separation from God. Um, and so we are saved from the pit. That's not necessarily what uh, the person speaking is referring to uh, at this point in time, uh, but he could be. But that's where we're going to be today. Um, so I want to show you our outline and where we are at this point in the book of Job. Um, if you haven't, um, if this is your first time, uh, or if you're just listening to this, um, there have been many sermons going back to last year, January 15th. So it's been about a year off and on, just whenever I'm preaching, whenever Kaysen can't be here. Um, so we've covered a lot so far. We are actually getting close to the end of the book now. Um, <clears throat> the bulk of the middle of the book of Job is an argument between Job and his three friends about why it is that Job is suffering and what he must do in order to be relieved of that suffering. And uh, we found out, uh, because we've skipped ahead to the end, and found out that God specifically points out Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, that you, God says, you did not speak correctly about me as Job did. Um, and so we know because of the end that those three friends are not reliable, but that Job is reliable according to God. We also know in the very beginning that God himself points out that Job is righteous. He is blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil is how he's described. Uh, today, you're going to hear from Elihu. And so the three friends have finished their argument. They've come to the end of their arguing. They no longer want to say anymore. We're going to see that in this first verse here um, in chapter 32. And Job is finished. Job just ended his last speech. And so the very last sentence of the last chapter of 31 says, the words of Job are ended. Um, we will hear Job respond to God later, uh, but so far the main bulk of that argument is coming to an end. But we have this other character this other person that shows up here right at the end of the argument who's interesting. And as I've looked into it and heard from different pastors and different commentaries and things, there's a lot of opinion about who he is. Uh, you've heard uh, Kaysen talk a lot because he's teaching through Genesis uh, about a Christophany, and that term meaning that an appearance of Christ before his appearance through the birth of Mary um, Christ shows up a few times in the Old Testament, and we see that in Melchizedek. And so one of the opinions about Elihu here, who we're going to be studying today, is that it's a Christophany. This is Christ showing up in the Old Testament. Um, and you have that on one spectrum all the way down to, you know, here's just another person who's vile and shouldn't have spoken at all, and he was wrong to ever have spoken. Um, I don't know that that's the case. Uh, some people think Elihu might be the author the original writer of the book of Job, um, not the one who wrote it down for us for the Bible, but the one who held the story, which may have been given to either Moses or Solomon who wrote it for us. Um, maybe he's the author. Maybe Elihu is the author who recorded all this information for us and packaged it. 
Um, they talk about his descendants. He might, he might be a relative of Abraham. Uh, there's lots of things about who Elihu is. And so I'm not going to steer you towards one opinion or another. Uh, we will talk a little bit about it. But one of the things that I've held all the way through the book of Job is that I find that the book of Job is a really helpful book to help us study the Bible. And I think the book helps us with that in a number of ways. Uh, we've seen in the arguments that there are long passages, tons of scripture full of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar in this book. And we also know that God says they didn't speak correctly about God. So we learn through that, that just because the words are in scripture, it doesn't mean God is the one speaking. And it doesn't mean that that statement is right, right? Sometimes wrong things are written in the scriptures for us to know that that's wrong so that we can understand and point us back to the truth that we find in God and in Christ. Um, So that's one of the helpful things. Elihu, perhaps, is one of the people, the chapters in this book, that helps us to learn to kind of decipher on our own, to really meditate on the scriptures. Um, uh, You know, many people, if you hear the word meditate, you think of kind of an Eastern religious practice or um, like a New Age mystic practice of clearing your mind. But the Bible uses the word meditation for basically the opposite. It's focusing your mind on the word of God, what you're hearing, what you're reading, and meditating on it whenever God uses it means to think about it, continue to think about it, not clear your mind, focus your mind on what it is that God is saying and why it's important. So after today, (laughs) you shouldn't take my word for all of this. There will be uh, some of my view in here, and we'll pick this apart, but you may have to meditate on this. Elihu goes on for six chapters, and we are just going to cover the first three today. Um, So we're just going to take his speech in two chunks. Um, Elihu is not uh, addressed by anyone. Job does not respond to him, even though he speaks to Job. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar don't respond to him, even though he speaks to them. And God says nothing to him or about him. So at the end of the book, whenever God says, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, you're wrong. Job, you're right. He doesn't say anything about Elihu. And so we don't have, in the scriptures, we want to stick to what the scripture tells us. We don't want to follow our own viewpoints or opinions to build some kind of theology, a basis for what we believe about God in the world. We don't want to build on those opinions. We want to focus on what's here. And sometimes, sometimes, there's not enough for us to make any kind of stand in one way or another. So that's what we're going to kind of pick through today. Uh, Elihu, similar to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, it has a lot of true statements that we know are true and that are supported by other scripture. So I'm going to bring in that other scripture to show you how it's supported. I'm going to bring in other scripture whenever he's wrong to show you that this doesn't line up. And that's how we should study the Bible. Whenever we do read a passage that we come to and it's challenging, we should look for other places in the Bible that talk about that subject, and find out, is this consistent, or is this a one-off, or is this contradictory? You know, this doesn't line up with, you know, I can find five verses that say the opposite of this one, so I must not be understanding this one well, or this one is written in here to show me what's wrong, and the other five were meant to show me the truth. So, that's what we're going to do as we go through. So, here we are at Elihu now, um, after all of 
the rest, and then in two more times, uh, we'll finally get to hear God speak and ask these incredible rhetorical questions and talk about his creation um, and all that he's done. And uh, we'll get a little taste of that in Elihu today as he talks about the omnipotence of God, that God is all-powerful. So, that said, let's jump in. Job chapter 32, verse 1. And I'll uh, stop along the way and pull out whatever I can um, to help us with God's help. So, 32. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. So the three men are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And it says they stopped responding to him. Job just finished a long speech because he was righteous in his own eyes. Not just in his own eyes, but as we discussed before, in God's eyes, he was righteous. Um, God called him that. So it's not just in his own eyes. But they couldn't refute him. This argument went on. We finally made it through the whole argument. But it was, I'm innocent. God is doing this for another reason. No, you're not innocent. You need to repent. You've done wrong. And if you'll repent, then your life will get better. You know. And it was just that forever. And they finally, finally at this point, we can't convince him of anything. And they brought no evidence. And we're going to see how angry Elihu is at them because they accused Job and blamed him, convicted him almost as if it was a court of law, like you're convicted, without bringing any evidence of wrongdoing. You can't do that. And so Elihu's going to point that out. Verse 2. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Bereshel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. So this is the first instance where I would disagree with the Christophany, the appearance of Christ in the Old Testament situation, because it's giving a lineage of where he came from. Christ doesn't have that kind of lineage. Christ only has one. He wasn't made. He wasn't created. He was born through the virgin birth uh, when he took on flesh, but Christ, Jesus, was never born. He was with God in the beginning. He was one with God, as we read about in John chapter 1. But here... It says he's the son of Bereshel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. So that would be my first argument against that view. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. So this is talking about Job, uh, not Elihu justifying himself. He feels like Job justified himself against God. Um. In other words, Job, you've spent this whole time trying to argue why you are right and you are righteous and you are blameless instead of arguing God was right to do this to you. Which there is some truth to that. God is right to do whatever God does. He's never wrong. And so Job could make that argument. But I think in some ways Job did. He, He never accused God of wrongdoing. But, you know, nevertheless... Here, he's angry. Um, I have a verse here for you. So it talked about his wrath twice already, Elihu's wrath. And we know from other scriptures here, particularly James 1, 19 and 20, it says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So here's my first red flag. He says he's full of wrath and he's about to speak. Well, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Um, So that's the first red flag that we see here. 
so he's off to a little bit of choppy start here. Uh, verse 3, also against his three friends his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So that's where he's talking about. If this was a court of law, you found him guilty and didn't bring any evidence. This is essentially what he's saying. Here we are. We've got this court case. You're the lawyer. You didn't present anything and then said he's guilty. Like, you can't do that. That's wrong. And, and that's very true. Uh, so he's right for that. Uh, verse 4. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that the three that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So he kind of started off right. Uh, it was respectful and appropriate for Elihu to wait and to be patient and let the men speak, especially in that culture. I still think, even in our culture today, it's respectful for the younger to uh, listen to the older to give them precedence, to listen to wiser, older people. Um, but especially in that day, Elihu, he was right in doing that. Uh, as we read before in James, being slow to speak, swift to hear, slow to speak. He's, he's off on the right track, doing the right thing starting out, but when they didn't answer, his wrath was aroused. So verse 6, So Elihu, the son of Bereshel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. So here again, he's, he's off on the right track. Uh, verse 8. But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Here's a statement that we can evaluate here. Is this true? Is it not? Um, I think there's great support uh, from Proverbs. Proverbs. So age does not automatically equal wisdom. Proverbs 16.31 on the screen here. It says, The silver-haired silver head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. Wisdom is not automatic with age, it comes with age and during that growth period that you're moving towards righteousness, that you're following after God, that you're following his word, studying his word, growing in wisdom through where wisdom comes from. True wisdom comes from God. If you don't seek the wisdom of God, you will not find wisdom. Um, and so age isn't an automatic thing to equal wisdom. Um, I'm sure, you know, I've been around older men, much older than me, who, and women, who are still very childish um, because they do not seek after God's wisdom. Um, and I, I'm sure you've seen the same. Um, I've met much older people than me who are not very wise people at all uh, because they continue to focus only, solely on themselves and their needs and, and live that way. So, uh, I think there's truth in this statement. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. And that wisdom does come from God. He says, there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. So wisdom comes from God. So I think this is a reliable statement from Elihu here. Verse 10. Therefore I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. 
Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. So, again, we see here, Elihu did well. He was slow to speak. Verse 12, I paid close attention to you. Okay, I'll stop there. We're going to find out pretty soon that he paid he paid attention, but not close enough, because we're going to see he's he accuses Job of too much here in a minute. We'll, we'll talk about that. So he did listen, but he didn't listen as well as he claims he did. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. Again, here's another error, because we're going to see in a little bit that Elihu actually sounds a whole lot like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his friends, as he talks to Job. (laughs) So he says, I'm not going to talk to Job with your words, but we're going to see he actually does sound a whole lot like them here in just a little bit. Um, Verse 15. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. He's talking about the three friends here. And I have waited because they did not speak, because they stood still and answered no more. I, will, I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief I must open my lips and answer. So here, verse 18 through 20, for me personally, these would all be red flags. If someone said this to me, I would not be ready to hear from them. I I would immediately, this would be reason for me to doubt whatever it is that is about to come out of their mouth. Um, He says, I am full of words. That's already a problem. (laughs) Um, I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. Now, I've, you know, I don't have personal experience with this, but I understand, at least in the fermentation process of wine, it releases a gas, and that gas has to go somewhere, you know, and if it doesn't, it causes it to expand. And so Jesus even makes a comment in the New Testament about you don't put old wine into new or new wine into old wineskins, right? Because they would put them, it was basically like skin, like a wine skin. It was skin from an animal. It was like a hide that they filled. Well, it's elastic. You know, skin stretches some. And, uh, you know, some of us, unfortunately, have experienced that more than others. But our skin stretches, right? So if you have an old wine skin, it stretched. It's already been stretched. It has no more elasticity. So if you fill it with new wine that's fermenting and that gas goes, it's going to burst the skin, right? And so, oh, now I actually understand that better than before because I didn't understand that concept. And so that's what he's saying here. I'm like new wine that needs a vent or I'm about to burst. So that's what he's saying. I'm so full of words. I have to talk. I have to talk now. I will speak that I may find relief. (laughs) He has to talk so badly it's hurting him. I must open my lips and answer. Verse 21. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. 
we'll find out in a minute, but I'm telling you now, he, he holds up to this pretty well. He does not flatter anybody, except himself a little bit. And we're going to see that. Elihu becomes a little bit arrogant as we go through this. So he doesn't flatter Job or his friends, that's for sure. Uh, but he does flatter himself uh, quite a bit. So chapter 33, verse 1. Listen to this wind-up. Um, I think there's a rule. I don't know baseball that well, but I think there's a rule in baseball about like a wind-up, like a pitcher's, a pitcher's wind-up. You know, it has to be fluid. You know, it can have a few mov- movements in it, but you can't hiccup. I think there's like a penalty because you throw off the batter too much or something. There's this fluidity of a wind-up between the pitcher and the batter, and there, there are limitations within that. You can't stretch it out too far, and that's sort of what Elihu does here in these first few verses is like in a legal wind-up. So listen to this. But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth. My tongue speaks in my mouth. My words come from my upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. Okay, get to it, Elihu. Just say what you're going to say. Um, but here's also his first folly into arrogance. My words or my lips utter pure knowledge. Okay, so he's getting a little bit prideful already. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. So here's an interesting thing here that we'll stop for a minute. So he says, truly, I am as your spokesman before God. Um, It could be, could it be, that Elihu is claiming to be the mediator from Job 9. I've got this verse on the screen for you, Job 9 32 through 33, we've, we've already studied this before, whenever we talked about Job's need for a mediator. And so earlier in this chapter, and Elihu, remember he said, I listened carefully. So this may be him going back to Job's statement here. For he, that is God, God is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. And we also talked about 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, um, which is not on the screen, but it's the verse that says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, right? We talked about that. That's who Jesus is. So Job is pointing to the need for that mediator, almost prophetically talking about one day there will be Christ uh, on our behalf, which is our reality now. Um, but it's almost like Elihu is stepping into that, that role here by saying, surely I am your spokesman before God. He's stepping into the mediator position, right? Now, if you think that this is an appearance of Christ and that Elihu is Christ in the flesh earlier in the Old Testament, you have, you have no problem with that. In fact, you would use this towards your argument. I could see this as for that argument. I'm your spokesman before God. Well, Christ is. That's who Jesus is. So this must be. But the second half immediately refutes it because he says, I also have been formed out of clay, which Jesus would not say about himself because Jesus is eternal with God. He was not made out of clay. Um, So uh, that's, that's an interesting statement that Elihu makes here. I think he's 
unreasonably stepping into the role of mediator. I think this is coming from his arrogance. So, verse 7, Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. This is most likely a reference to Job 13.21, where he said, Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. That was Job talking to God. And so he's trying to reassure Job here. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. Verse 8, Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words saying, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. Job didn't say that. That's not what Job said earlier in the passage. Um, Job did point to his innocence, uh, but he never said that there was no iniquity in him. He never claimed that he was perfect. In fact, um, I want to go to uh, this verse on the screen, Job 9.20. So this is where he didn't really listen accurately. He jumped too far because Job actually had lots of statements, but this one in particular. So Job is saying this as if he did get a court case and was standing before God. So as someone standing in front of God, right in front of him, he says, though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. So he's saying no matter how blameless and upright, I have lived as a man, you know, by man's standard, following the law, seeking after God, worshiping him. We st- he recognizes in these statements the human nature of sin. Like, I'm not perfect, is what he's saying. Even though I could live a righteous life, I cannot be perfect. If you were to compare me to God, his says his mouth would condemn him, and that he would be proven perverse. So he recognizes that before God. And so Elihu, again, is overstepping, overclaiming what it is that Job said. So verse verse 10, Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. That that is true. Job did did include that. He talked about how God has turned against him. Uh, But that's true. Job was being tested. He was going through deep sorrow, which was brought on by God's command. Um, Verse 12. Look, in this, you are not righteous. This is Elihu telling Job, because you said this, you're not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. We all know this is a true statement. We don't really have to look anywhere to, to support that. God is greater than man. There's no question in that. Um, If Job had said what Elihu said, then yes. If if Job really claimed that there was no iniquity and that he was perfect, yeah, that would would not be right. That would not be righteous. But Job didn't say that. Um, So this is another false accusation here. Going on through 18. So verse 13. Excuse me. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds. You might recognize this phrasing. Uh, Eliphaz says this early on in the book. when We talked about he he heard a dream, a vision of the night, and that's what he came and told Job. Um, And so this is kind of a reference to that same kind of idea. Verse 16, then he opens the ears of men, and seals their instruction. 
in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. So here we do, we do get a different, this is kind of in the middle of Job and his three friends. This is another approach to why God would communicate or potentially why we would suffer. And we'll see that in the next verses as well. Uh, Go on to 19. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones, so that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out, which once were not seen. Yes, his soul draws near to the pit and his life to the executioners. So Elihu here appears to claim that God does speak to us in a number of ways, including through dreams. Um, Because Job Job did make a lot of statements about how God isn't answering me. I don't hear from him. I can't hear him speaking. He's not saying anything to me. Uh, Elihu here seems to refute that. God is speaking to you. You're just not hearing him. You're not paying attention to what's going on. You need to pay better attention. Um, And one of the purposes in Elihu's view is to turn us away from our own plans in order to save us. So Job is saying that I've done nothing wrong and God is punishing me for no reason. And the friends say you've done wrong and God is punishing you for it. So it's all punitive. You are suffering. You are going through this. God has spoken to me in a dream, Eliphaz says, to tell you that you've done wrong. And all of this is about right and wrong. If you mess up, you get penalized. If you do right, your life is great and good and perfect. Elihu takes a different approach. God may speak. You may go through these pains. You may be chastened with pain and have strong pain in your bones. And it's God using that to keep you from danger of your own plans. Um. So, yeah, I mean, you could come up with any number of examples, but, you know, let's say, like, you know, my plan is to drive here tomorrow, and then something happens. You know, you have a death in the family, for example, some, you know, serious suffering. Like Job, you know, he lost all of his children. Something happens, that plan changes, and then you find out there's, you know, some major traffic accident where people are killed, and you were going to be driving that way. That's sort of Elihu's approach here. God rescues you from your plans because he knows what's going to happen and you don't. And he puts you through some kind of situation to stop you in your tracks so that you won't go that way. We could look at it in other ways too about like sin. You're going to be heading down a path where you're going to fall into sin and God puts something in your way to stop you from making those choices. He removes the ability for you to even make those choices. So it's an interesting approach. I think there's some truth to that. Um, I think... The book of Job in general um, is a really great source for us to study suffering. And I think it's true that God uses it for so many reasons that we shouldn't try to narrow it down. And I think that's what happened in the book of Job, that the friends did wrong, is they wanted to narrow it down just to sin. If you sin, punishment. If you live right, everything goes right. And I think God uses suffering. I think Elihu's correct in this. And I think God used suffering... In lots of different ways. You know, one of the things in my life that I know of the suffering that we've been through recently 
is so that I can comfort the next person who goes through it. You know, that's a totally different thing. Elihu's not pointing that part out. But that's so true. And I, I hope that you realize that in your own life, that God uses that to prepare you to be a comfort because we comfort one another in his body who goes through that next. You know, so that's another thing. And we can look for all the ways that God uses everything in our lives, the good and the bad, for these things. And so I appreciate here that Elihu has another approach to why God would redirect us or uh, chasten us, as he puts it. So, verse 23. So here, uh, this next section, 23 through 28. Um, I want to stop and and look at all of this because here we have a, a bunch of great imagery of Jesus and the gospel. And so he makes all these statements, and I, I don't think Elihu is, you know, aware of what he's saying at all. I think that just we can see it in his words that there is a reflection of who Jesus would be one day after that and that we get to experience as well. So... <clears throat> As we read, read along, I'll stop with each word, and I, I don't have these verses on the screen, but I'll just read them to you as we go along. So the first one is mediator. So 23, if there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. And so this is that same verse that we talked about before. First uh, Timothy 2, 5 through 6. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus answers and fulfill this, fulfills this in their future, in our past, in our present. And he saves man from the pit. So true about what Christ has done. The pit being death, eternal death, eternal separation from God's goodness um, and punishment under God's wrath. It says, I have found a ransom. Mark 10, 28 says, just as the son of man, this is Jesus talking about himself, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom is a price you pay for a person, a person who's in danger, in slavery, who's being sold, a person who is under bondage in some way. That's the ransom, the price you pay to get that person. Christ paid the ultimate price by death, and we are saved by the washing of his blood um, because of what he's done. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. This is kind of a picture of the new body that we will receive in heaven. 26, he shall pray to God and he will delight in him. So this is saying, God will delight in the one who's praying. He shall see his face with joy, for he restores to man his righteousness. So we will see God's face. The face there is his face, God's face. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul is talking about our future in heaven with God, with Christ, compared to now. So what he's saying is, It says this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. He's talking about our hope, our incredible hope in the future of being face to face with God. So now we do see God. We do see Christ as in a mirror dimly, right? But then 
in our future face to face. So here it says, he will see his face with joy. For he, God, restores to man his, capital H, God's righteousness. And so we see that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We put on God's righteousness by no merit of our own, as we sang about this morning. It's nothing I could do would ever atone, but Jesus, you paid my debt. Jesus became sin on our behalf, crucified that sin, and was raised that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an incredible gift of all the things, um, you know, lots of people, when you are moving up in your career, you're applying for jobs and doing all that, you want to know what the benefits are, right? And the benefits of knowing Christ are that. We get to put on the righteousness of God. We, we get changed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. When he calls us to serve him, the the reality of serving him is that he is glorified by it and that we receive a benefit of knowing that we are living a life that pleases him and we're following after godliness. We are, it puts us in relationship with him. I mean, these benefits can't be compared to any benefits that any company would ever give you. Um, and what an incredible blessing, you know, the things that we point to. And um, so many people, even with Christianity, think that, God is going to give you perfect health and make you rich. And those aren't really the benefits that are promised to us. But the benefits that are promised are so much better, uh, namely salvation, right? To be saved, we are, what are we saved from? You know, what are we saved to? Uh, they, they far outweigh anything that we could get in this world. Um, uh, moving on, so verse 27 Then he looks at men and says, I have sinned and perverted what what was right, and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, there it is again, and his life shall see the light. So it says that I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it did not profit me. Then what happens? He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit. So 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So godly sorrow, whenever we're faced with our own sin, that we realized we are sinful before God. We have wronged him because he is perfect. He has blessed us with all things in this world, and we have turned our backs on him. When we recognize that and move toward godly sorrow over it, truly I have done wrong, that's true repentance, which the word repentance people talk about as a changing of your mind, and they're right to say that's changing of your mind, right? But it's, you know, some people just want to say, oh, well, you're just thinking wrong, just change to the way Jesus thinks and you're saved. But no, repentance, as the Bible puts it, because we want to define our terms according to the Bible. We don't want to define them by modern standards, right? We want to define them the way the writer of whichever book we're reading, the way they define it in context. Repentance is a godly sorrow over my sin. It says, 
It produces repentance leading to salvation. So it's like a prerequisite, a requirement before salvation is to truly have godly sorrow over your sin against God. And, you know, if you read the New Testament and you hear the way we talk about the gospel, but if you read John the Baptist and Jesus and Peter and all of his disciples and apostles and Paul, they all talk about repentance. I come teaching a message of repentance. That's what John the Baptist came and taught, a message of repentance. Jesus took it up after he was baptized. I go to to teach a message of repentance. And then Peter, on the day of Pentecost, whenever that incredible scene happens where they're speaking in all these different languages and all these people can understand, and they ask, what should we do to be saved? Peter's first word out of his mouth is, repent and be saved. And then Paul says, I went to the Gentiles to teach them repentance and obedience to Christ. And so this idea with salvation, with the gospel, is so important. And I think sometimes it's left out, and I've, I've been in those circles. But we want to make sure that we're, we're understanding that in a, in a healthy way, that whenever we're sharing the gospel and talking to people who are interested in what does it mean to be saved, what does it mean to follow after Christ, that they're led to a place of repentance first, that they're not just oh, join our club. It's, it's not like that. So uh, that's an important thing that's pointed out here and uh, also there in Second Corinthians. Moving on, verse 29. Behold, uh, we're in 33 still, uh, 29. Behold, God works all things twice, in fact, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. So here we see this saving from the pit that God has done. And it, it says he works all these things twice. In fact, three times with man. This is a, a Hebrew expression to say over and over again. In other words, it's not really those numbers. It's two. In fact, three. It, you could say four. Five, you know, on and on. It's saying God continually does this. What this is pointing to is God's incredible patience. That's one thing we need to know about our God is his incredible patience and love for us. He is very patient. Second Peter 3.9, I have it on the screen here for you, says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. So this is talking about Jesus's return. People already back then were saying, well, if he's coming back, where is he? Because it's been a while, right? It's been a much longer while now. And people still say that. If he was going to come back, why well, hadn't he done it yet? So he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, that's another word for patient, toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he's saying, God not coming back is a good thing, because when he comes back, he doesn't come as savior, he comes as judge. And so we see God's incredible patience, that he does this for us that he continues to wait on us, to give us the gospel, to give us an opportunity to repent and to follow Christ. Uh, Verse 31, give ear, Job, listen to me. So this is Elihu again. Hold your peace and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. 
hold your peace, and I will teach you wisdom. I don't know about how much time was in between those sentences, but when you read it like this, it's like, speak, never mind, I'm going on. He didn't get a chance. (laughs) So, uh, chapter 34, and this will be our last chapter today, and we'll wrap up. Elihu further answered and said, hear my words, you wise men, give ear to me, you who have knowledge. Uh, Sometimes, Uh, This is interpreted as him being sarcastic towards the three friends. Um, I don't know that it is. We talked about before that in their culture in their day, obviously it was very different from ours, there wasn't entertainment at all. You know, we can get entertainment in any number of avenues uh, to be entertained, and we have tons of things at our disposal to do, to fill our time with. Back then, this... You know, hearing theologians, men of God, debate about the truths of their reality in their world, that was big. That was a big deal. This was like the major, biggest pop concert of their time to hear these three, you know, well-known, intelligent men debate with one another. So it's very likely that a crowd began to draw. And Elihu says, I listened to all of you. So at some point, Elihu's been there listening to the conversation. Uh, Job made some comments that there were people there who were scorning him. So there's good chance that a crowd had come and developed. So it could be that Elihu isn't being sarcastic just to the friends, but actually is addressing the crowd. Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. We're not sure. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. It's a very true statement, a great, uh, great analogy there. Let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks scorn like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. He quotes Job correctly here. Um, But he falsely accuses Job just like the three friends. Remember he said he wasn't going to use the words like his three friends. But he falsely accuses Job and says he drinks scorn like water. He goes with the company of the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men. Like that's his accusation to Job right here. So he sounds just like the three friends. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work, man's work, and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? Or who appointed him over the whole world? If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. So here he's talking about God's holiness, and he's absolutely right. Far be it from God to do wickedness. God is perfect. He's holy. He's absolutely set apart as the one and only true perfection. Right, So he's, he can't do wickedness. So he talks about God's holiness first. Then he talks about God's omnipotence. This is really important for us to understand about God. Omnipotent meaning 
all-powerful, right? Kaysen pointed out uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, one thing God can't do is learn, right? But that's not really, you know, that's just an expression to say something he can't do. But in terms of ability, strength, you know, will, there's nothing that can stop God from doing what he wants to do. And that's what he's pointing out here. Um, who gave him, gave God, charge over the earth? God doesn't need to be appointed. He doesn't need someone else's authority. He doesn't need someone to tell him what to do. This is an incredible thing for us to, again, meditate on, to think about these things, about what God is like. And then this statement, if he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. God is in control, holding everything together by his power. You know, in I like when Kaysen talks about physics because he seems to understand it better than I do. But in physics, physicists still don't understand why an atom holds together because the protons and electrons are opposites, so that makes sense, but there's a neutron in there. So by all means, it shouldn't stay. <laughs> like, it shouldn't hold together, and it holds together, and they don't know what that force is. But the Bible tells us what the force is. The force is Jesus. He holds all things together. And if he chose not to, which, you know, could very likely be what's being described in Revelation whenever he says the world will burn up into nothing in a moment, in an instant, that's God saying, no more. I'm not holding on to this anymore. He lets that go. There's a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, right? If God chose to do that, because he's literally making everything work and breathe and live right now, if he chose not to, then there's nothing we could do about it. We couldn't go on on our own. We don't have the power. He has all the power. So again, great thing to meditate on, to reflect on about who God is. Verse 16, if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is most just? Is it fitting to say to a king, you are worthless? And to nobles, you are wicked? Obviously not. Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. This is really great. This is a statement way ahead of its time, you know, against prejudice, against any kind of prejudice that may exist, and to show that in God's very nature, he's not prejudiced. He doesn't regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all works of his hands. So, That's an argument against, again, any kind of prejudice, including racism or anything else. Uh, And it's true. In the very nature of God, he's against those things. In a moment they die, in the middle of the night, the people are shaken and pass away. The mighty are taken away without a hand. For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty men without iniquity and sets others in their place. Therefore, he knows their works. He overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways. So they caused the cry of the poor to come to him for he hears the cry of the afflicted. So he's talked about, Elihu has talked about God's 
omnipotence, his holiness, and now here he's talking more about his sovereignty, that he sees everything, he knows what's going on, and he's in control and in charge of it all. He is in charge. He is ultimately in control of all things. Um, He also here, again, starts to sound like the three friends, right? Because he's talking about when the wicked do wrong, God knows, and he stops them, and he punishes them and puts them to an end. We know this as future. It's the other side of our future. We have a great hope, but we also have this great fear, this great uh, sense of sadness and loss over the reality that the wicked will be punished, that they will be cast out from God's presence. Um, And so these things will come true, um, but they don't necessarily happen on our time. Verse 29, when he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him, whether it is against a nation or a man alone, that the hypocrite should not reign, lest the people be ensnared? Again, pointing to God's omnipotence. What can we do or to God? For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more? Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Should he repay it according to your terms, just because you disavow it? You must choose and not I. Therefore speak what you know. This is a really great... um, This should hit home for all of us. Uh, Because I live in a world where I can think of just about anything and I can get it, and I can get it quickly, oftentimes with very little effort, very little money, I can get what I want. And that conditions us. We are conditioned and we are influenced by those things. And over time, you don't realize how ungrateful you become or that you treat other areas of your life that way. And one of them is God. God, I am sick and I don't want to be now. I want you to heal me now on my terms. Do we try to force God onto our terms or do we wait patiently on the Lord as we should? So this is a really great just reminder, this great rhetorical question. Um, Should he repay it according to your terms just because you disavow it? It's a really great question for us to, to consider. Men of understanding say to me, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge, another false accusation. His words are without wisdom. Again, God's going to refute that. Well, in a sense, God is actually going to echo that towards Job because Job did speak what he did not know, and Job actually does respond to God. So I guess in that sense, Elihu is right. Because Job will say, I spoke what I did not know. <laughs> so Job does say that. He, he spoke without wisdom or without knowledge. Um, oh, that Job were tried to the utmost, because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against us. So that was a really offensive thing to do in that culture, apparently, especially since debate was still a regular thing, debating. If you clapped while someone was talking... It was a way of interrupting them without speaking, which was, you know, there was like a moderator that would, you could only speak on your turn. So rather than speaking, you would clap 
while someone's talking to interrupt them and, and be loud and be a distraction. It was really <clears throat> a disrespectful thing to do. So that's what he's accusing him of. So here we have, we finish up with more accusations against Job, some of them true, some of them false. Um, we'll pick this up the next time and cover the next three chapters of Elihu, and then we'll finally be in and hear from God himself. Speak, it says, through the whirlwind. So really looking forward to that. Uh, I always want to um, give some kind of what should our response be, like life application to a, a Bible study. And I think that that's a good thing um, to hear from wise people, uh, to hear from teach or lead a Bible study or something like that. But I also think that it needs to be on the individual, you know, who I am, my age. You know, I'm 36, I have four kids. A lot of my life is focused on work and raising my children. You know, you're not in that season. So the application to your life may be different based on the very same passage of Scripture. Uh, so I don't want to dictate that too much. But one thing I can say for sure, um, that should be a response whenever you hear things from God, is to repent, to submit, and to put your faith in Jesus and do it today. Um, don't wait. And if you haven't made that commitment, it is <laughs> definitely worth making. I hope I pointed that out. Um, and that it's free to you. Christ offers it to all. It is available to you, his salvation. If you will repent, submit to him, put your faith in Jesus, and then he'll give you the power to follow after him and to, as we sang, slay your sin, set it aside to walk in obedience um, and to be able to be his servant that one day we'll get to stand face to face before him. Thank mm-hmm. you.